You can be seated, church family. Thank you for those words. Thanks, Corey. Beautiful, beautiful song. Beautiful reminder. So glad you're here this morning. The German psychiatrist who went by the name of Herbert Pluge. He not only had a hard name to say, Herbert Pluge, but he was a psychiatrist who spent most of his time studying those who went through deep depression. Focusing solely and specifically specializing on people who even had suicidal thoughts. You can imagine what a difficult job this man had. Trying to study some of the darkest parts of human nature and the difficulties that people go through. As he studied people who suffered with deep depression and others who had even attempted suicide, he started to find patterns. Patterns among people who had come out on the other side. Maybe they suffered with depression for a number of years. Or maybe they had come out of having suicidal thoughts, but they found new life and even vibrant life on the other side. And what he found was across cultures, across demographics, even across backgrounds and nationality, those who survived dark times in their life all had one common peace in their life. One common denominator that brought them through darkness and into the light, and that was that those people had all discovered at some point in that journey what they described as a transcendent hope. A hope that went beyond circumstance and troubles and hardship and even a hope that went beyond their background and the people that they were surrounded by. A hope that began to carry them. That was one truth he found. But there was another truth that I found that was even more revealing. His studies also revealed this other truth. And it was that for them to be able to find such a foundational hope, a transcendent hope, they first had to become dissatisfied and disappointed with all the little hopes that they had They had to become dissatisfied with hopes like success and money and influence and power and their own abilities. They had to become disillusioned with the things that we often say, that's what will give me. So, that's no wonder that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount begins this greatest of all teachings with that very declaration. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. In other words, you're blessed when you learn to lay down the little hopes in your life. Because it's then that you get to take up the kingdom life. When we say kingdom life as a church, what we mean is a life under God's rule and reign. A life that has found true life in discovering that I don't find life in all my little hopes, but I find life when I ring the bell, when I submit, when I reach the end of my rope, when I lay down all my striving to get my way, that there, when I'm poor in spirit, there really is hope. Hope when I take up life under the rule and reign of the king. 
King Jesus. As my one and my only. Christianity is built on hope. It's built on a hope in a Savior, hope in a heavenly home, hope in a loving and good God, hope in salvation and forgiveness. And it is built on a hope which the Sermon on the Mount pushes us toward from the inside out, a hope that who we are now is not who we will always be. Amen? A hope that who you are now is not who you were five years ago. Amen? I'm glad. We hope as a church in transformation. An inside out, upside down transformation that starts not with our striving, but with us saying, we can't do this, God. We need you. So let's begin with this scripture. Creed Gray is going to come up, one of our seventh graders. And as our scripture reading for this morning, Philippians 1, 3 through 6, listen to Creed as he reads this scripture. transformation that is not our own ability. It's not even our own initiative, but it is initiative that is started and completed and ongoing by God Himself. Change is possible. Transformation is possible. All of us in here live by that hope that you can be the person that God wants you to be. But we must remember this morning that if you are putting your hope of change in little hopes and not a transcendent hope, you will never change. This change is not going to be enacted by an outside force, an economic standard, a political party, or even slight shifts in outward behavior. The only way to transform is by letting God do the work He has already begun. The work He began when we said, I want all of you and none of me. We went into the baptism of the work He began when He gave us the Holy Spirit. So this morning, as we get into the last ten verses of Matthew chapter 5, two more passages where Jesus will say, you've heard that it was said, now let me tell you, let us be challenged this morning to adjust ourselves, to let the Holy Spirit as a wind blow. Let us be challenged this morning to relax our closed, angry fists and submit and open our hands and open our eyes and let God work this morning. From the inside. I don't know where you are this morning, but I do know this. I know that no matter where you are or however you came in to our building this morning to worship, God loves you exactly where you are. He loves you exactly where you are, but He also loves you so much He doesn't want you to stay. He wants you to change. Let's pray together one more time and ask God's blessing on a difficult 
passage this morning. God, we know you have bigger plans for our lives than probably all of us can imagine. And so, Father, we pray a prayer of submission today. May your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives. And we open angry closed fists. May we turn our stiff necks and our callous hearts towards you. And may you do your best in us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So here it is. Jesus continues his inside-out transformation message. His kingdom message, his kingdom manifesto. And he says in Matthew 5, 38-48, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not pagans, do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is burned. You have heard that it was said. Jesus here is giving his fifth and sixth contracts where he's not doing away with the Old Testament law and tradition. He is fulfilling it, showing the way God always meant. You have heard that it was said. And in these two statements, he confronts, first of all, our desire for retaliation and revenge. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Let me get back at you while really not getting it back at you, but getting worse back at you. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And he confronts also our inclination towards easy love. Loving those who already love us. Greeting those who greet us. Together what he's doing in summation, and there's so much here we could say, is he is confronting our desire for selection here. For making commands of our own. Selective here. Now, I would ask the men in the audience, but we won't get an honest answer. Wives and moms, does anybody in your household suffer from selective here? Show of hands, please. Now men, by your own confession, do any of you suffer from selective here? Okay, alright, we got some honest people in here. Some husbands are like, no, I don't hear what I want. <laughs> All of us can probably relate. Sorry about these watermarks, but parents, we have this, right, in our house. Kids, I've asked you to clean your bedrooms seven times now. Listen to your mother. And then, of course, the parents start opening a chocolate bar. Very quietly, what? What did you say? We know how that goes. Or, 
husbands and wives, you know this one, right? The wife is rattling off a lot of things, and the husband only hears, I want you to go lay down and rest. <laughs> right? We all suffer from selective hearing. But it's not just at home that we suffer from selective hearing. And it's not just men. Women, I'm sure that we do this too. And it's not just domestic issues. It's spiritual issues. We all suffer from what God says versus actually what we want to hear. Now, I'm going to stomp on some toes here. But I'm going to give some examples of this in order for us to get our head around what Jesus is doing in these difficult passages where he says, don't return evil for evil. Instead, love your Do good for those who come after you. But we all have to admit before we get to those passages, before we start to apply some principles and apply some inside-out transformation, we've got to admit that we have a problem with Reading the Bible only with the ears we want to hear versus what God actually said. See, from our passage today, Jesus says clearly, Matthew 5, 39, turn the other cheek. But we hear, yeah, that's for other people, but if they really wronged you, go ahead and slap them. Or return insult for insult. Scripture is apparent in this. There's so many other places in this where the greatest, second greatest command is to love your neighbor. It's right there in Leviticus 19, 18. It's in Matthew 26, 37. But what we need is what Jesus exposes. Well, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, I get to pick who my neighbor is and then hate my enemy. <coughs> Scripture is clear. Not only here in Exodus 23, 19, or 9, but in many, dozens of dozens of places in Scripture, we are told as followers of God, do not oppress the foreigner. And we as Americans here do not oppress the citizen. Colossians 3.17 tells us, as Christians, you are living a life of worship. Do all that you do for the glory of God, Paul will say in Romans 12, he'll say your life is a sacrifice of praise. But what we hear is what worship is what I do to check a box on Sunday and the rest of my week doesn't matter. And then maybe one more scripture expresses in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. And instead of that love being transformative, what we hear is God agrees with me, I don't have to change. Because <laughs> God... I expressed those this morning not to make people feel bad but to remind us of something it's difficult for us not to have selective hearing when it comes to the passages we just read from Jesus I don't want to pretend this morning and sugarcoat it as if it's easy loving your enemy, turning the other cheek, praying for the good of people that annoy you or you dislike, or we would even go so far as to say, I hate, is not easy. It is tough. Our desire to overcome others and retaliate is a deep desire. And that's why we need inside-out change, change that comes from the Holy Spirit. So first, this morning, here's what we need to know. 
I think inside out change begins with this principle. Number one is that enemy love. If I'm going to love my enemy and turn the other cheek, it begins with knowing that this is not God's suggestion. This is God's command and it is God's example. This is who God is, not only what God says. God is the one that says love your enemy, but he's also the one who shows us how. You're here this morning because on some level, all of us want to live the kingdom life, the best life that Jesus has to offer. We value this morning the heart of wanting to follow God's commands. And I hope this morning that we follow God's commands over our own justifications and our own traditions. It can become a nasty tradition in the church to not love our enemies. And it probably has become that way. That's all right. We justify it. We rationalize it. See, selective hearing is simply a rationalization of our own attitudes and actions. But we've got to start with, this is not just God's desire and command. It is the way he lives. What does Jesus say on the cross? Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them. Is there name? So let's take a little heart check for just a moment. What are you holding in your heart today? Is it God's command or your own selfish intent to get even? Is it God's example of sending His Son and sacrificing His best? Or is it your desire that you're holding in your heart to do easy love instead of enemy love. See, God's advice is for good, kingdom-centered life is one that offers themselves on behalf of even those who would hurt us. Are you holding that in your heart? Or are you holding in your heart you as ruler of your kingdom? See, we know this. It's hard to admit. One of those positions leads to transformation. And the other leads to self-destruction. I was reading Martin Luther King's sermon from 1967 where he has a famous quote in it that's often shortened. I'm going to give you the longer version of it. The shortened version is, I'm going to choose to love because hate is too much of a burden to bear. You've probably heard that from Martin Luther King Jr. before. Well, that was part of a larger sermon in 1967 to the Southern Christian Leaders Convention just a few months before he was assassinated. And here's the larger quote. He says this in the sermon. He says, and I say to you, I also have decided to stick with love. For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problem. Command and example of what God does. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about love in some circles today. And I'm not going to be I'm not going to, uh, sorry, I'm not talking about an emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. For I have seen too much hate. I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South when they see us. I've seen too much hate on too many Klansmen and too many white citizen counselors in the South to want to hate. Because every time I see that hate, I know what it does. 
It does something to their faces and something to their personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. So I have decided to love. So if you are seeking the highest good, we will only find it through love. God is commanding it. But he also knows through example that is the best thing we can offer the world. Now we love to sing and talk about love in our culture. And this is going to date me. But I was trying to think of different songs that came to mind when I thought about the word love and how our culture sings about love. And so I came up with a few here. Elvis, of course, saying, I can't help falling in love with you. In the 80s, foreigner pleaded us with us, I want to know what love is, right? right? I want you to show me, right? Is that on Coach Cavs' playlist when they're working out? Right? The Beatles told us, you can't buy me love. Air Supply ugh, said, I'm all out of love. And of course, Diana Ross and Lionel Richie said they had an endless love. My endless love. Which I only knew because of Happy Gilmore. But anyway, right. Now, I want you to notice something when I quote those songs. None of our popular songs about love from the 80s, which those are mostly from the 80s, and I'm sure if I would look up lyrics from today, which I'd have to get hip again, because I have no idea what's popular today, I'm sure that no song that has ever become popular about love talks about and sings about enemy love. You're not going to hear lyrics on the radio, just love your enemy, you know, you're not going to hear that. So our definition of love always carries with it cultural baggage. The cultural baggage that love has to do with romance and rom-coms and sweet, gooey sentimentality. And on some level, that's okay and that's good, but it causes a big problem for us when Jesus commands us, love your enemy. And the reason is, is because it's really hard if I define love by my feelings and by romance and by good feelings towards another. I'm going to always struggle with love and enemies because enemies do not provoke good feelings. Right? Some of you saw somebody else in the building today that you are annoyed with or have a disagreement with and your face, as Martin Luther King was talking about, automatically changed. Because you don't feel loved. Right? How do I know that's true? Because I frowned at a few of you today too. <laughs> that's why this is so hard. Dostoevsky, great Russian philosopher and author, said in the Brothers Karamazov, I hope I said that right. He says this about love. He said, love in action is a, is a hard and dreadful thing compared to love in our dreams. See, enemy love is God's command. So we have to redefine love as more than positive feelings towards somebody or good vibes. This is our second principle. Not only is enemy love God's command, but enemy love and real love is a decision to sacrifice. The only way we make practical sense of Jesus' kingdom message, 
his kingdom ethic of non-retaliation, turning the other cheek, and going the extra mile, even when it's hurtful or harmful, or gifting your best to the person who's trying to sue you, and also praying for those who we don't like. Only way we get there is to redefine from the inside out what love really is. And y'all know this. Love is not a fear. Love is a decision. It is a commitment. It is an action. Love is sacrifice. It's an inside out movement. The high qualities of 21st century Western America of selfishness and self-preservation have nothing to do with the kingdom of Jesus. I will amen myself. Amen, Jake. You feel the pressure to live towards those two virtues. Selfishness and self-preservation. And those have nothing to do with love. To love our enemy is to actively seek what is in their best interest, even if they don't agree with that. Ultimately, before we get scared away by these commands, the command of enemy love is really no different than anything else that Jesus did. Jesus has always insisted that citizens of his kingdom put the interest of others ahead of their own. And we have to redefine love. Now at this point, I would usually try to find a good touching story in a sermon and look for some example of enemy love. Or maybe tell about a Christian martyr in the past who gave their life in such a way that showed enemy love and it turned somebody around. But I'm not going to do that this morning. Those are out there and those stories are great and they're plentiful and you can look for them. But oftentimes when we think of those stories, those stories turn us a little bit and we think, well, that's impossible. I can't do that. I'm not going to be marked at the stake like Polycarp or somebody like that. So instead, here's what I'm going to do. To wrap this up, I want us to look again, not as a command that's unattainable. I don't want us to see this passage here as something that we can never strive towards or get to. I don't want to make us feel like enemy love is impossible. I want us to know that it is possible because the answer of how to get to enemy love is already right there in the text. Let's go back to the text and see. Here's what Jesus says. He gives us the answer. So instead of a good story, I'm just going to give you good scripture this morning. It's Matthew 5, 43 and 44, where he says this. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, how do we do that? Right? How are we going to? Well, But I tell you to love your enemies. How do we do that, Jesus? And then he goes and gives us the answer. Pray for those who persecute. You've heard that it was said, go ahead and hate your enemy. No, I'm telling you a better way. I want you to love your enemy. Life seems impossible, Jesus knows. Love for your enemies is fulfilled through prayer. Enemy love is only possible through prayer. See, loving your enemy and praying for them are not two separate commands. One is fulfilled by the other. The latter is fulfilled by the former, right? Or the former is fulfilled by the latter. I don't know how that works. 
To love a person is to seek the good in them and for them. And so Jesus goes, if you want to do that, there's no greater place to start than through prayer. Because here's what happens when we begin to pray. In prayer, I had Allison make this little prop for me out of some blue light glasses I have. In prayer, you begin to see the cross for your enemies. I can't see y'all real well right now. But it's good, because all I can see is the cross. That's what prayer does. What he's saying is that as we pray for the people that we disagree with, as we start to lay them before the Lord, as we start to pray for their good, those who annoy us and those who drive us the wrong way, those whose personality is like sandpaper against you, and even those who say to you, I can't stand you. When we begin to put them in prayer in the presence of Jesus, something happens. We start to see them in light of the cross. And when we begin to love our enemies through and in prayer, and we start to see them at the foot of the cross, something beautiful happens from inside out. Because in prayer, I cannot continue for to hate the sinner who sinned against me is to also hate myself because I have sinned against others and so prayer is our avenue prayer changes our vision it gets us down to where we need to be in a place inside out Transformation. When was the last time you prayed for the person you disagree with? For the person you have conflict with? For the person that you despise? For the person that rubbed you wrong last week? Here's our challenge today, because this is not an impractical message. This is an inside out message to be sure, but it is one that is completely when we, this week, begin to pray for our enemies, you will actually begin to get Jesus' vision. Barry calls that being cross-eyed. Which took me several years to figure out what that meant. But it's beautiful. So here's the challenge as we wrap up. I want to challenge y'all to do this. Pull out your bulletin, pull out a piece of paper, do it now or you'll forget. Pull out something, write down a note. Most of you won't do this because none of you are getting out a piece of paper. All right, one person, write down one person. Maybe you don't want to write down their name right now, so put down their initials. One person that this week you will say for the next seven days I'm going to begin to pray To begin to put them at the foot of the cross, to begin to ask that God does good in their Life. Now, a word of warning. Your prayer should not sound like this. Oh God, I despise this person, so please bring judgment upon them. That is not loving your enemy. If it's not a prayer you would want prayed for yourself, there's your litmus test, right? Right? Oh Lord, break the teeth of so-and-so, you know. Those are in the Psalters. There's time to lament like that, but this is not the time, probably. 
Your prayer should sound something like this. Oh God, please be with this person. May you bless them this week and may they somehow see your goodness. See what God does. Will that take transformation? Is that hard to do? Amen, church? That's why we ask the Holy Spirit to bless us. That's why we don't do it alone and why we don't come here this morning with any sort of silly inclination towards we can grit our teeth and make that happen. It's only possible through what Philippians 1.6 says, by God continuing and to complete the work that He has already begun in us. May He do that in each of us. Let's stand together and sing. When we walk with